we're really excited now. We're in that very last stage of um, taking hold of something that God, in our community centres, that God has uh, planned in to our agenda over the last couple of years. We've we've had some ups and downs with it. We've um, but we're now at a point where we're very close to signing the lease and um, and really seeing what amazing things we can do um, out of those. So really super excited about that. And Shanice is a, a really great. She's got dropped in at the deep end. Uh, lots of stuff for us. We were still working out how it all, all was going to happen. And um, she's been really gracious and really kind of got hold of it really well and um, so continue to pray for her because it, it will be a tough job um, but we're, we're really looking forward to seeing how God uses us through those buildings. Um, the other thing I, I really wanted to share with you uh, was just last week uh, I thought was just superb just um, it was it was amazing to see people come forward and give thanks to God um, for stuff that has gone on in their lives and um, where he's worked uh, faithfully through them and that they give to, they get to give a story of his goodness. And um, what's really great for me is that, I, you know, many of them, I, I kind of live them with them, you know. Uh, uh, I, I, I get to know uh, lots of stuff about what's happening in people's lives. Um, in a really good way, um, and it's good to hear those stories being shared. I, I kind of got, kind of really um, pulled me up uh, during the week because I, I kind of thought, well, you know, we uh, Rich uh, got ten minutes uh, to do his preach um, that he'd obviously spent time on, and um, uh, he was fine about that, and he actually did a great job just bringing it all together in 10 minutes, which was brilliant. Um, but I, God really pulled me up as, as if, you know, I was brooding over that and thinking, well, you know, uh, sh- should, I have, should I have just made a bit more room and stuff? But God really said, no, no, no. Uh, what's good is that people get to, to tell their stories, give thanks to me and just... Uh, um, uh, I also felt... One of the things I wanted to share, um, but didn't because of time, was that my great uh, privilege um, uh, and real thanks to God is that I get to lead you guys and I get to lead this amazing group of men, women and children who are such a blessing to me. I mean, really you are. I I, I love you to bits. And um, I really wanted to say that last week. so I'm saying it now. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the support you give me, the way that you serve, the way that you do amazing things um, uh, amongst uh, the family. Um, and I give thanks for you, uh, to God, for that. So thank you. <clears throat> so... Um, I get the real privilege this morning of uh, winding up our summer series, um, looking at uh, the, G- the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor. 
We conclude with his letter to the church in Laodicea, which, in my opinion, is, is actually the, probably the strongest worded um, and most challenging, probably, of all the letters. Um, some may disagree, but um, I kind of feel that as so I've read through all of them. Um, it's been a real, uh, it's been a really great to kind of hear these letters um, and to get to share out of them. And it almost feels um, uh, a bit sad to kind of move on from them, but we will uh, from next week. Let's pray. Yeah, Holy Spirit, I, I just want to thank you that we've just had time to look at these um, beautiful letters that I've uh, written to your church, that um, we get to hear that love poured out and that concern and that real uh, heart's desire to bring your church back into all your purposes. And Lord, we get to do that again this morning. I want to pray, Lord, that uh, would you connect our hearts with yours this morning as we share your word, that we get to get caught up again in that amazing place of your glory and your majesty and your supremacy. So, Lord, we just pray, would you be here, just continue to be here as we look at your word this morning. Amen. So we're going to... Um, we're actually going to start back in Revelation 1 again. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And then we're going to jump to our, our church letter this, this morning in chapter 3, verse 14. And then I'm going to continue on through into chapter 4. It might sound like a lot. It's not actually a lot. But um, I just felt I needed to uh, 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 put, it, put everything into context. For you. So, chapter 1, verse 12. Remember, this is John recounting his vision of the risen Christ. Now, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. So our letter... And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realising that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white in garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your um, clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be jealous so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens a door I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 4. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and his voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must, be, must, what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Clothed with white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creatures like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things, and by your will 
they existed and were created. Amen. I deliberately wanted to bookend our final letter this morning with the passages from chapter 1 to 4 in order to help us stand within the landscape of where this letter and the previous six stand. If I were to sum up the book of Revelation into four words, which is always a little bit of a dangerous thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, there'd be the supremacy of Christ. Because of this truth, we need to surround these letters with this overwhelming picture of what that looks like. We cannot read these letters in isolation of this great truth. And when we get to stand back and take in this incredible image of these, this little collection of vulnerable and at times wayward churches who he could have just up and abandoned um, as a lost cause. Instead, we see him surround them with this onslaught of visual language which gets to remind them of the authority by which these letters are sealed and delivered. The two great pillars of truth standing tall within the book of Revelation have to be these. His absolute supremacy and his absolute passion for his church. What comes out of these terrifying but at the same time beautiful visions of a risen and conquering king are these lovesick lines of longing and heartache. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat, to come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Eating with others was one of the most intimate acts Jesus ever did. These are the love letters from a jealous God who has fire in his eyes for his church, who longs for them to remain burning brightly in their love for him. In these letters, Jesus is passionately breathing the breath and fire of life back into his church. And how poignant these letters are to his church today. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking these letters are just for their time and that we somehow get to casually move on from them without a response. Revelation is a prophetic book. It shines its light into every generation. And his church today, you and me, are caught up under it. What will always remain unchanging is a sovereign and supreme risen Christ who continues to pursue his church with an inexhaustible passion and an inextinguishable fire in his eyes. 
Everything about the passion of Christ wants us to be winners with him. Wants us to be conquerors and overcomers. Wants us to share with him not only the riches and the treasures of the heavenly storehouse, but his very throne itself. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Wow. Can we really move on for an in, from an invitation like that and as, as if we'd just been invited out for a coffee with a friend? This is a stop me in my tracks statement in need of a proper response. And as I move on, I want us to stay, remain in that place for a moment. It seems entirely appropriate that we end our summer series this morning among the church in Laodicea, where Jesus is warning his church that the very worst thing they can be is lukewarm. Be either hot or cold, be one or the other, but never lukewarm. For if you remain that way, I will spit you out. Spitting is offensive, isn't it? These are deliberately offensive words coming from the mouth of a loving God. Designed to shake his church to the very core. But they're not words coming from a place of judgment or anger or condemnation. They're coming from a heart cry saying, come on, don't grow cold on me. You're my plan, you're my hope, you're my hands, my feet, my voice to this lost world. Don't slip away into ineffectiveness. Be in or out, but never in and out. I will not tolerate that, Jesus says. If you remember back um, in the letter he wrote to the, to the church in Ephesus, he warned them that if they didn't burn brightly for him, he would withdraw his light from them. And you know, that's a very real warning, even to his church today. I heard only this week that trends are showing that a thousand people a week are leaving the Anglican Church in the UK and that the Baptist Church could possibly fall off the Christian map altogether within the next 10 years. If that's true, that would mean that some lights are already going out in his church in this nation. Let it not be here, in this place, not here in all nations. So what is it about lukewarmness that makes it less palatable to God than perhaps being cold? Surely being cold is worse, right? It's at the other extreme 
of being hot and on fire for him? What is it about lukewarmness that God simply won't tolerate? Well, there's a a clue hidden here within the uh, geography of the local landscape. To the south of Laodicea were the hot springs of Heropolis, Heropolis. And to the north was the city of Colossae, uh, which at the time was known for its cold water, refreshing water. Laodicea lay between the two and had to rely on bringing water six miles from Colossae by an open aqueduct. I know that because I've seen it, uh, or bits of it. This meant that by the time it reached the city supply, it had become warm, possibly contaminated by a dead goat or a sheep that had fallen into it. But it would have almost certainly reached the town supply at the very least as an unpleasant taste to the mouth. Jesus is simply saying, hot water is good. It cleanses and heals. It purifies. It's a sign of health and well-being. On the other hand, cold water refreshes and invigorates. It quenches thirsts and soothes fevers. Lukewarm water, however, is neither one or the other. In fact, left in its state, for long it can become polluted and poison to the body and soul itself. Jesus is saying being lukewarm brings disease to his church. Laodicea has, its, has its, had its water tested and to a holy and pure palate failed as foul tasting and poisons. In their wealth and self-reliance, the church had neglected to stir into their lives the life-sustaining properties of his presence through the Holy Spirit. They had allowed themselves to be preoccupied and distracted by the pursuit of prosperity. And in their sin, they had become a church attractive only to the flies from the town dump. And it is, of course, to the church that Jesus directs his rebuke. This is a collective rebuke. Let's remember this is a letter to a church and not an individual. Preachers can often make the mistake of calling for a response from an individual when the scripture is plainly turning its attention on the church. It's the collective body of the church that is being held to account here. Jesus wasn't taking the temperature of Laodicea one person at a time. He stood among them. Remember in chapter 1, Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And as he stood among them, the best the lampstands could muster 
was lukewarm. A bunch of smouldering wicks that allowed themselves to become a bad taste in his mouth. It must have been a heartbreaking moment for a saviour who had poured his very life into them. As a pastor, um, you're constantly trying to gauge the temperature of your church family. You can't help it. It becomes uh, what you do. The health of the flock weighs on you. And at times it becomes this double-edged sword because on the one hand you're a shepherd and that actually is who I am. That's, that's uh, my natural bias as a pastor, to be a shepherd. To protect, to release, to raise up, to nurture, to comfort and at times correct but as a pastor, you, always, you also need to be a watchman. There are times when I know I have to stand back from the individual and assess the health of the flock. And that's you guys, by the way. What do we look like? What do we sound like? What do we behave like? What impression do we leave on those who look in on us? Are our waters healthy enough? Healthy enough that others then can come and help being drawn in. Where others can come and drink and drink in the goodness of God. Be refreshed, revived, healed and loved. A place where they leave with a satisfying taste in their mouth. Is that us? I hope so. As well as a shepherd, I suppose I get to be the keeper of the waters, so to speak, regularly guarding our spiritual temperature, and of course, I include myself in that. So how are we all doing? Jesus' feedback to the church in Laodicea was, was harsh, to say the least. It needed to be. These people, uh, these were a people whose lives had been transformed by a lavish, saving grace of a passionate and merciful God who had once furiously burned in their hearts for him but had become blinded by their own wealth and self-styled sense of security. Weighed and measured, they were found wanting. As all they could offer back was tepidity, a lukewarm nothingness, unacceptable to a holy and sovereign God. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked, of course, these were harsh words. This was a Jesus demanding his church back. Hot or cold, but not this, not lukewarm. And that re cry remains over his church today. 
in this spiritual pick-and-mix age of what feels right must be right, where moral boundaries are being stretched so tight that right and wrong are just becoming a blur, where rights and needs for happy, comfortable lives appear to be trumping his sovereignty and authority over them. If ever there's a time where God needs to claim his church back for his purposes, it must surely be now. He's not calling back a church of tepid nothingness who measure their wealth and significance by worldly yardsticks. He's calling it back, saying, buy from me your gold that's refined in fire so that you may be rich. Don't be trawling the marketplaces of this world for goods and treasures that just don't last. Set your eyes on the prize of his eternal kingdom purposes. Pour into that your first love. Remember our first love? Pour into that the very best you have and not what remains. A couple of weeks ago we sang the outstanding hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it has two lines at the very end where it almost seems as if Isaac Watts tears open his chest, lays himself bare, as if to say, okay, Lord, I surrender, take it all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I'm going to um, ask you to do something now I don't think we've done before, but um, I don't think we have. Uh, but I want us uh, not to stand, uh, but I want us just to close our eyes and just uh, take time just to kind of invite him in, just as I share the last few words. Um, let's just, just hear this and respond to it. There are three words in this last line. Demands my all. That can often challenge most of us at times in today's world. Maybe back in Isaac Watts' days, these three words were more readily acceptable to God. Maybe the word demand was less offensive back in 1707 than it appears to be today. Nobody tells me what to do. Who do they think they are demanding of me? You can ask, but don't ever demand. Is that how we come before God sometimes? Is that how you come before God at times? The problem is, 
is that it's, that's exactly what he does. Demands. And that gives us a problem because the world has made that word offensive. We need to give him back the word demand. What about the word all? Ouch. How do we feel about that? My life is so busy. My family is my priority. It must come first. I have so many demands at work at the moment. Isn't it funny how the word demand is somehow more acceptable when we use them in excuses? And what about this one? Sin? What sin? If we're not first giving him all, we're in real danger of giving him lukewarm. I find the illustration of the aqueduct really helpful. It can look a bit like our journey at times with God. We can start off in the flush of first love, bursting with passion, full of gratitude for a life saved and transformed, out to change the world for the gospel, bright shining faces reflecting the love of Jesus. But how often is it that we take off on this winding route through twists and turns, distractions and obstacles, where needs and priorities drain us of our energy and our time. And sometimes, somewhere along the way, sin falls in and contaminates our precious intentions. So that by the time we get back to him, the source of all we set out with that was pure and good, full of life and richness, most of it's been worn away and often all we have left to offer up is our lukewarmness. All nations, let's not be a people who allow this to be or continue to be the way that we do life together. Let's be a people where our collective cry is, yes, Lord, I trust you with my life. Take it all. Why don't we stand? I need to pray this prayer myself. And I want to invite you to join me in your own space to say this prayer together with me. Lord, if there's any sense of lukewarmness in this room this morning, let it not be me. Jesus, if I've offended you in any way, by inappropriately relying on this world instead of you. 
if I'm drawn from the well of this world for my significance and my satisfaction before I've drawn from yours. I want to say I'm sorry. Forgive me. Lord, if there's sin in my life right now, expose it. Bring it into the light and help me surrender it to you. Lord, would you help me not to let the words demand and awe be an obstacle to you anymore. Lord, where I've been offended by them in the past, Lord, release me from it. I want to say I'm sorry if that's hindered you in any way. Lord, I give you permission to continually ask for my all. Lord, I trust you with my life, so I trust you with my all. Amen. Yeah, um, we're going to sing a final song. We've already sung it, but we're going to sing it again because it kind of fits really well. Um, I just want to say, if a lukewarm is sitting uncomfortably with you this morning, if you want to make this personal, if you want to, if you know you've got to put something right before God this morning, I'm going to invite you as we sing just to come forward. And there'll be people here to pray for you. So we're going to sing. And as we do that, if you feel that right for you, then just come and stand here. And we're family together.